Good morning, everyone. It's a time of year when a lot of, a lot of thank yous are, are rightly in order and I just wanted to, from the front, say thank you to all of those of you who have given of your time and used your gifts in teaching our children Sunday by Sunday. So thank you for doing that, those of you that are still here on this Sunday especially, uh, for being so faithful. I know there was a moment before when we were standing, kind of waiting for things to start today, we went... Well, all the Sunday school teachers are here. I don't know if anybody's going to show up to be in their classes, but uh, there was, it filled in. Um, but yeah, we have a faithful group, and I'm thankful for them. So we're here on the, the last Sunday of Advent. We've been looking at some messages during this season around the theme of fear not. That seems to be a pretty constant refrain in this time of year. Um, we think of especially angelic visitations to different people. That seems to be the message that was so frequent. And today we look at Joseph as we move closer toward the birth of Jesus. I think we can probably all think of at least one occasion in our life when we failed to act on something and maybe had some regrets after the fact. We don't have a whole lot of students here still with us today, but I imagine they're not the only ones that could think of something along the lines of, you know, I should have told that girl I liked her, or maybe I should have put some more effort into that project, or, or some such thing. Now, sometimes these things are not really all that important in the grand scheme of things, but, but sometimes they really are, right? Sometimes they're kind of like the turning points that I talked about last week, a small thing that would or would not have made a big difference. But sometimes they aren't all that big actually at all. When I was in grade 12, I went uh, on a school trip to Toronto for about a week with a couple other guys from my school and one of our teachers uh, to be on a CBC game show for teens. That's pretty nerdy, I know. It was one of those weird things that just sort of, just sort of happened. So the other two guys on my team they had actually put together an application to be on this game show as a joke. But the people that were like taking applications, I don't know if they didn't get the joke or if they did get the joke and just thought it would be funnier to accept their application. I don't quite know what the thought process was, but they got a message back that they were due to be on this game show and then they had to re recruit me onto the team, I think because they wanted somebody smart. Um, <laughs> It's the only reason, yeah. And, and so, so the, the initial round was just at the provincial level. But because Saskatchewan has such a low population, we only had to win one game on the radio in order to get accepted to be on the, the television program. And so we won a game on CBC Radio. They send us to Toronto on this all-expenses-paid trip. Ho air travel, hotel accommodations spending money like 60 bucks a day or something 15 years ago too your tax dollars were hard at work on on that expenditure i promise so the teacher who was supervising us he ended up supervising or rooming with another guy and this teacher he was supervising three girls that were on this same trip and it was actually the second game we ended up playing in the televised round and they beat us once what's more um, but after that, their teacher kind of suggested to our teacher that these three girls might be interested in going to see some live theater with us and was wondering if we'd like to get tickets to all go see The Lion King, which was playing at that time. 
I thought this was a good idea. The other two guys did not. I don't really know what their problem with it was. Like, if they thought live theater was stupid, or if they were just chicken, or they didn't find the girls attractive. I really don't know. And it's one of those weird things that has absolutely no consequences on the rest of your life, but you look back on it and go, why didn't we go see The Lion King? That probably would have been fun, but anyhow, we didn't. Now again, it's one of those things that truly mattered very little in the grand scheme of things, but in a small way, I think it does illustrate the, the fear of taking action. You, we fear something might be hard, we fear maybe it won't be enjoyable, we fear rejection, we fear that it would be more than we bargained for, we fear all of these sorts of things when we're faced with a choice that will require us to actually do something about it going forward. The unfortunate thing is we often waste far more time and emotional energy stressing and obsessing about the decision than in most cases it would actually take just to deal with the consequences even if they were bad. If you, if you follow me. Moreover, we often find that wrestling with the decision is far worse than just doing the actual thing. Of course, this is where we find Joseph in our text today. His decision, though, is a pretty major one. His decision and the action he must take or not take isn't just asking a girl to go see a show with him. It's whether or not he's going to go through with marrying this girl given the fact that from all the indications he has, she's been unfaithful to him, and he's wrestling with this. So we uh, have this read to us in just a minute. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill the Lord, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So last week we looked at this same story uh, from Mary's perspective. This week, it's kind of the other side of the coin. Matthew tells it more from Joseph's perspective. And there's some details that are very, very similar between these two stories, these two sides of the same story, really. Uh, but there are some unique points as well. The text says here she was found to be pregnant. Matthew assures us by the Holy Spirit, but of course, Joseph does not know that. Uh, he, that's, of course, why he's doing so much wrestling with what to do. We don't know the exact course of events here, but I think we can piece things together between Luke and Matthew without too much forced harmonization. 
Luke follows up the annunciation by, by Gabriel to Mary by saying that Mary hurried off to spend some time with Elizabeth and Zechariah. And Luke says she stayed there for about three months and then returned home. And if you've seen the, the Nativity Story movie, they play this up for a bit of extra drama uh, and kind of extend Mary's sojourning with Zechariah and Elizabeth so that when she comes back, she's notably pregnant, which probably would not have been the case. But nevertheless, at some point, the truth had to come out. And when it did, as, as I mentioned last week, things probably would have turned pretty ugly. I mean, I'm sure Mary would have tried to explain the message that the angel had told her and that she hadn't done anything wrong and that this was a miracle, but really, who, who could be expected to believe that? There was no precedent for anything like this having ever happened before. And it was much more likely that the truth of the matter was that Joseph was simply the father. That's what people probably would have assumed. Kind of fits with Mary's abrupt leaving town like that. Maybe she realized or at least suspected she was pregnant and decided to go away. Uh, maybe initially with the intention of never coming back, people might have assumed. But of course, when Joseph says that he's not the father, that doesn't leave a whole lot of good options for Mary. And so, as the text says, Joseph has a lot to think about. As we might say in our popular idiom, he had a lot to process. What action is he going to take here? He has to do something. You can tell a few things about him, though, even from the little bit that we have here. Whatever circumstances led to their engagement, and it in this culture would have been most likely that, that their families would have arranged for this marriage. That would have been normal in their culture. However well they knew each other, and, and likely they didn't in this culture, especially if, if we take the view that Joseph was from Bethlehem and maybe didn't even grow up in Nazareth. They probably didn't know one another very well at all, and in this culture, uh, young couples wouldn't have had a lot of time to even get to know one another before they got married. But it seems, though, that even so, despite these things, Joseph must have cared for Mary quite deeply. He has all the evidence before him that she's been unfaithful to him, and he still doesn't want to put her to public disgrace. And that says a lot. He must have been heartbroken, angry, outraged, a whole, a whole mix of things. What's more, um, if Mary had been unfaithful to him, and if he had made some kind of arrangement with Mary's father, some kind of a bride price, and if there was a dowry included uh, with their engagement, if Mary was unfaithful to him, he would be entitled to keep her dowry, and Mary's father would be obliged to return any bride price that he had paid to Mary's father if he was to publicly divorce her. In spite of all of this, he doesn't choose to be selfish. That shows real character. It's also clear, however, that he has a high regard for God's law. He's not willing to, to just lie about this and say that the, the child is his and kind of sweep this all under the carpet. And that shows some real character, too. He wants to do the right thing. So he settles on the course of action that he's going to be merciful and just divorce her quietly. Now, the Jewish oral tradition uh, made a provision for this. 
that he had the option of a public divorce, which would be basically before the whole town, or at least the elders of their village, and uh, Mary would be publicly accused, and there'd be pressure on her to confess who the father of her child was. It would kind of be a public spectacle. Or he had the option, instead of doing that, to divorce her quietly, which would basically be sign the writ of divorce before the biblical two or three witnesses. That would be sufficient. And I kind of wonder, given the fact that maybe Joseph didn't grow up in Nazareth and was from Bethlehem, if his plan was just to do that and maybe quietly leave town once that was done and sort of let people think whatever they were going to think. Uh, Without actually accusing Mary publicly of unfaithfulness, people might talk, but likely they wouldn't do anything else. I mean, the Roman law was that the Jewish people weren't able to execute anyone to, to follow through on a capital offense, which this kind of adultery was in the law. They weren't technically allowed to do that, but Nazareth was kind of a backwoods, out-of-the-way area, and in such places, mob justice is often still a thing. So Joseph tries to do the right thing. He doesn't want that to get out of hand. He wants to be merciful and just keep this as quiet as possible. Some of this is a bit of speculation, of course, but In any case, what is clear is that Joseph is trying to reconcile the fact that he feels betrayed with the fact that he still cares about her, with the fact that he doesn't want to lie to save face. And these pieces, there isn't really any easy way that these are going to go together. That's his struggle. Whatever action he's going to take, and he has to make a decision. The evidence is there. People are talking. He's going to have to take action. Whatever actions he took we're going to have consequences. And right at that point of having to choose between several bad options, trying to sleep, probably tossing and turning, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. And again, we have this this familiar refrain, don't be afraid. Throughout this series, we've looked at the fact that whatever immediately follows, don't be afraid, is an important pointer toward what the, the deeper more primal fears would have been for these characters. We look back in in Isaiah 40. Fear not. Behold, your God will come, even if it looks like he never will. For Zechariah, fear not. Your prayer has been heard, even if it looks like all these years it hasn't. Mary, fear not. You have found favor with God, even if that means incredible risk. And now, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. It's don't be afraid to take a specific action. Take Mary home as your wife. Doing so would bring a certain amount of shame on Joseph. The best people would assume was that he had been, and Mary had been sleeping together and he was simply the father of the child. And for a righteous man to have people assume that about him in this culture would have been pretty shameful. That would have left a serious black mark on Joseph's reputation and character. People might get over it. They might not. Of course, people might still assume that Joseph wasn't the father, and this must have been in his mind. What if the child doesn't look anything like him? What if, in fact, maybe the child happens to look like some other guy in town? Then people would really talk. And furthermore, like Mary, He must have been afraid of of what obeying God would mean for his life. This is hardly what he would have planned, I'm sure. 
My sense is that Joseph, while being a man of solid and righteous character, was probably a pretty simple man at heart. Find a good wife, have some kids, build stuff, maybe keep a goat or some chickens, travel to Jerusalem once in a while for the, for the feasts and the religious festivals, hopefully live long enough to know his grandkids. I suspect those were probably the things he imagined would be part of his life as, as an average working class man in that culture at that time. And this, this is going to seriously upend everything. I mean, the scandal surrounding what's going on is bad enough, but also realizing that this isn't just any child. This child is going to be the Messiah. Like this, this flips his whole life right over. But the angel is clear. Instead of divorcing her quietly, Joseph, marry her quietly instead. Look after her, be a good father to the baby. And even though it wasn't exactly the truth, raise him as your own. This is clear from the instruction to Joseph that he is supposed to name the child Jesus. In their culture, that would have happened when the baby, as a boy, was eight days old and was circumcised. In ancient cultures, and even in many more traditional cultures today, the father naming the child, that would have meant acceptance. In many cases, that meant acknowledgement of paternity. In effect, by, by Joseph giving the name Jesus to the baby, he was adopting this child as his own. Again, this wouldn't have been how Joseph imagined his life was going to turn out. This could mean some serious risk, certainly embarrassment, but like Mary, he was willing to say yes, and even to take some concrete steps of faith to see it through. And that's really where we all find ourselves when the call of God comes. It changes us if we're going to say yes to it and be faithful to God's call. It changes our plans. It changes our priorities. It changes how we understand ourselves and what we're to do in life. It might even feel like it wrecks those things. But in that, and even over against that, God's promise is that we don't need to fear. Following him, as I'm sure you've heard at one point or another, isn't necessarily safe, but it is good. Luke and Matthew both make extensive use of the Old Testament, especially in these, these birth and infancy narratives of Jesus. They just do it very, very differently. We've been mostly in Luke up until now, and Luke, our traditional understanding, based on a, a, mess, a mention in Colossians, tells us he was a physician. But it's clear he must have also been a poet, because whenever he draws from the Old Testament, he, he incorporates it into these poetic songs, especially in these opening chapters, where people speak out, you know, filled with the Spirit, and they they draw from some of the similar things that happened in the Old Testament. And, and he weaves it in. He gathers all these different references and combines them together in different ways and presents them to us. Very thematic. Matthew, if our traditional understanding is correct, was a tax collector. And he has a much more kind of direct approach to, to how he takes this, which kind of fits with somebody that was maybe a more dollar and cents financial kind of kind of guy. He opens with a genealogy, right? I'm going to keep track of all this. This is the person who is the father of this person, and so on. And when he does mention the Old Testament, often he does these little asides saying, this happened 
to fulfill such and such Old Testament prophecy. And sometimes it's clear where he's going and sometimes it is a little bit more creative. But he's very direct about it. But despite their differences in approach, there's a similar theme that's present in, in both Gospels as to what they have to say. God's word does not fail. It will find fulfillment. It can be depended upon. If God makes a promise, God will keep that promise. And we've seen that in our, in our series in these four weeks as well. Isaiah 40, again this is going back even before Matthew or Luke, but the mouth of the Lord has spoken, Isaiah 40 says, the word of our God shall stand forever. And then Luke says in the story of Zechariah, these words will be fulfilled in their time. And then to Mary, no word of God will ever fail. And now to Joseph, this happened in order to fulfill this word of God from ancient times. Last week, when we looked at the angel's message to Mary, we concluded by by stepping back from the decision that she had to make and looked at the assurance that was provided to her. And if you remember, that assurance came from the promises about who Jesus was to be. That's why she didn't need to be afraid. It was going to be hard. It was going to be filled with risk. But there were a lot of promises that came along with that related to who this baby was going to be when he grew up, right? He was going to be the king. He was going to reign on David's throne. He was going to reign forever, if you remember those things. Joseph has a similar thing in his announcement, too. In in Luke's account of the Annunciation to Mary, the name Jesus is mentioned, but here, more is made of it when the name is given to Joseph. Jesus, or in their language, Yeshua, was a pretty common name back then. The name meant the Lord will save or deliver us. And of course, hearkened back to the great Old Testament military leader, Joshua, who brought Israel into the promised land. And it's easy to see why this would have been a popular name for little Israelite boys at this time. The people were longing for a deliverer. They were living in their land, but they were living under Roman occupation and longing to be free of that, longing for a deliverer who would restore them to their rightful place as they once had and as their prophets predicted they would be restored to once again. People giving this name to their baby boys was an expression of hope that one day God would deliver them, drive out the pagan Romans, and restore their land to them properly. And of course, Joseph would have been familiar with the meaning of this name. It was a common name. If Joseph had a large family, he may have had a brother named this. He may have had nephews named this. Common name. But the angel puts a twist on it in a remarkable fashion. He says, you should call him Jesus because he will save his people. Not from their pagan oppressors, not from foreign invaders. He will save his people from their sins. So that's kind of a twist. Here's the thing. I think we can, it's easy for all of us to be pretty hard on the ancient Israelites, whether that's way back in the book of Exodus when they are grumbling all the time about Moses or in the historical books when they keep being faithful to God for a short time and then they forget the Lord and worship idols. Come on, guys, how could you do that? But I think we're probably a lot more like them 
then we admit we're not that much more smart, more faithful, way more better than they were. We bumble along too and we forget God's provisions and we complain about the one or two things that we don't like rather than rejoice in the many, many things that we have that the Lord has given us as his good gifts. Different contexts, different issues, same heart. This message from the angel that Jesus would save his people from their sins, that's a deep kind of a message. It's a message that what we think are our worst problems are actually not our worst problems. In most cases, we haven't, we haven't dug down deep enough to the bedrock of where the real issues actually lie. We can be hard on God's ancient people for wanting a, a savior from political oppressors and foreign invaders, kind of missing what he was trying to do in sending Jesus. However, God's modern people, we make similar mistakes in wanting, wanting a savior from financial difficulty or uncomfortable emotional states or just a general lack of success that we perceive. And while our Lord does promise to be a comforter, to the brokenhearted and to be a provider to his children, these aren't our deepest problems, as much as they can easily loom very large in our lives. Our deepest problems and all the results that stem from them are rooted in our failure to love our Lord with everything we have and to love one another in like manner. And so I think it's fitting that this Sunday we lit the Advent candle connected with love. It's a fitting way to begin drawing this emphasis on fear not to a close. I think often we would tend to think of the opposite of fear as, as courage. And that might be true in some contexts. However, courage is probably the opposite of fear in the sense of the result. What we see in the outworking. What, what we see at a an on-the-ground kind of a level, after the fact, a lag measure, if you will, right? A result. However, love is the opposite of fear, you know, before the fact, at the level of the heart, at the level of motivation, at the, in the sense of being the thing that might actually overcome the fear. And so I pray that we can take that into this Christmas season that we're about to enter into. Because this, as Daniel already reminded us with the children, this is where we see God's love in action, connecting with our world, right? In the Father sending his Son. Name him Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. God so loved the world. Good news of great joy. A virgin will conceive. Give him the name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this promise that we can look back upon 2,000 plus years ago of a Savior coming into this world to save us from, from our deepest problems. 
from our sin, from our, our failure to love you with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, our failure to love our neighbors as ourselves, uh, to do something about our, our alienation from our Father, our Heavenly Father, and his heavenly, his heavenly kingdom. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for that. And we pray that as we go into this Christmas season, that the realization of just all that you have done for us would bring us great hope, great peace, great joy, and great love for you, for one another, for your people. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us. In that Savior's name we pray. Amen.